Chapter 9 of The Call of the Wildflower. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adele Pooley. The Call of the Wildflower by Henry Salt. Round a Surrey Chalk Pit. I found a deep hollow on the side of a great hill, a green concave, where I could rest and think in perfect quiet. Richard Jeffreys As a range of hills, the North Downs are inferior to those of Sussex in beauty and general interest. Their outline suggests no greyhound backs coursing along the horizon, nor have they that living garment of turf, woven by centuries of pasturing, which Hudson has matchlessly described. Their northern side is but a gradual slope, leading up to a bleak tableland. And only when one emerges suddenly on their southern front, with its wide views across the weald, do their glories begin to be realised. In this steep declivity, facing the sun at noon, there is a distinctive and unfailing charm, quite unlike that of the corresponding escarpment of the South Downs. It forms, as it were, an inland riviera, a sheltered undercliff, green with long waving grasses and sweet with marjoram and thyme, a haven where the wandering flower-lover may revel in glowing sunshine, or take a siesta, if so minded, under that most friendly of trees, the white beam. I have memories of many a pious Sabbath, spent in this enchanted realm, with the wind in the beeches for anthem, and for incense, the scent of marjoram enriching the air. To one who knows these fragrant banks, it seems strange that though the wild time has been so celebrated by poets and nature writers, the marjoram, itself a glorified time, has by comparison gone unsung. We are told in the books that it is a pot-herb, an aromatic stimulant, even a remedy for toothache. It may be all that, but it is something much better, a thing of beauty which might cure the achings, not of the tooth only, but of the heart. Its relatives, the lavender and the rosemary, have not more charm. It was the Americus of Virgil, the flower on whose sweetness the young Lulus rested, when he was spirited away by Venus to her secret abode. She o'er the prince entrancing slumber strows, and fondling in her bosom far away, bears him aloft to high Idalian bowers, where banks of marjoram sweet in soft repose enfold him, 
propped on beds of fragrant flowers who could wish for a diviner couch along this range of hills the chalk pits used or disused are frequent at intervals some of such size as to form landmarks visible at the distance of twenty or thirty miles for a botanist these amphitheatres large or small have always an attraction for though they vary much in the quality of their flowers and some have little to show beyond the commoner plants of a calcareous soil there are a few which present a surprising array of the choicer kinds and to light upon one of these treasure troves is a joy indeed i have in mind a large semicircular disused pit lying high among the downs and bordered with abrupt grassy banks and coppices of beech hazel and fir where during the past thirty years i have spent many long summer days sometimes writing under the shade of the trees at other times idling among the flowers or watching the snakes that lie basking in the sun or the kestrels that may often be seen hovering over the adjacent slopes for all their unrivalled openness and sense of space the sussex downs have no such sun trap to show one has heard of the music of the wildflowers i used to call the floor of this chalk pit the orchestra so numerous are the orchids that adorn it the spotted orchis the fragrant orchis the pyramidal orchis the bee orchis the butterfly orchis and the twayblade these six are stationed there within a small compass the marsh orchis grows below the fly orchis is in the neighboring thickets in the beech woods are the bird's nest orchis the broad-leaved helleborine with its rare purple variety epipactus purpurata and the large white helleborine or egg orchis a dozen of the family within the circuit of a short walk the man orchis seems to be absent though it grows in some plenty in similar places on the same line of hills another feature of the chalk pit is the viper's bugloss if as thoreau says there is a flower for every mood of the mind the viper's bugloss must surely belong to that mood which is associated with the pomps and splendours of the high summer noontide gorgeous and tropical in its colouring beyond all other british flowers as it rears its bristly green spikes studded profusely with the pink buds that are turning to an equally vivid blue it seems instinct with the spirit of a fiery summer day 
Like other members of the borage group, it has the warm southern temperament. Its name, too, suits it well, for there is something viperish in the almost fierce beauty of the plant, as if some passionate-hearted exotic had sprung up among the more staid and sober representatives of our native flora. Its richness never palls on us. We no more tire of its brilliance than of the summer itself. Akin to the bugloss, though less striking and less abundant, is the hound's tongue, with its long downy leaves and numerous purple-red buds of a sombre and sullen hue that is not often to be matched. It has the misfortune, so we are told, to smell of mice. Were it not for this hindrance to its career, it might justly be held in high esteem. Among the larger plants prominent on ledges of the chalk or in near neighbourhood are the mullein, the teasel, the ploughman's spikenard and the deadly nightshade or dwale. The buckthorn is frequent in the hedges and thickets and the traveller's joy is climbing wherever it can get a hold. But it is on the shelving banks that skirt the margin of the pit that the comeliest flowers are to be found. The most beautiful of all, perhaps, is the rock rose, a plant so delicate that its small golden petals will scarcely survive a journey in the vasculum, yet so hardy that it will flower to the very latest autumn days. The wild strawberry is creeping everywhere, and the crimson of the grass vetchling may occasionally be seen among the ranker herbage to which the stalk seems to belong. On the shorter turf is the small squinancy wart, lovely cousin of the woodruff, its pink and white petals chiselled like the finest ivory. The elegant yellow wart, glaucous and perfoliate, and the handsome pink centauri are common on the downs. So too, in the late summer, will be their less showy, but always welcome relative, the autumnal gentian. All three have the firm and erect habit that is a property of the gentian tribe. It is one of the many merits of these chalk hills that their flower season is a prolonged one. Not the gentians only, with yellow wart and centauri, are still vigorous in the autumn, but also the blue fleabane, clustered bellflower, vervain, marjoram, basil, and many labiate herbs. Even in October, when the glory has long departed from the lowlands of the Weald, there remains a brave show of blossom on these delectable hills. The Pilgrim's Way, often no more than a grassy track, runs eastward along the base of the downs, 
interrupted here and there by the encroachment of parks and private estates, which now block the ancient route to Canterbury. But where nature has provided so many shrines and cathedrals of her own, there is no need of any others. Certainly, I never lacked a holy place wherein to make my vows, many as were the pilgrimages on which I started. On one occasion that I recall, I was joined in my quest by a rather strange fellow-traveller, a man who met me, coming from the opposite direction, and eagerly asked whether I had seen anyone on the hillside. When I assured him that nobody had passed that way, he turned and walked in my company, and presently confided to me that he was an attendant at a lunatic asylum and was in pursuit of an inmate who had escaped an hour or two before. We went on a short distance together, he peering into the coombs and bushy hollows, as incongruous as a pair as could be imagined. Yet it occurred to me that his mission, too, might be considered a botanical one, since there is a plant named the madwort, nay, worse, the German madwort, a title which, in those feverish war days, would of itself have justified incarceration. Nevertheless, as I always sympathise with escaped prisoners, provided, of course, that it is not my bed under which they conceal themselves, I was secretly glad that my companion's search was unavailing. To return to my chalk pit, I have mentioned but a few of the many flowers that belong there. Within a mile or less, others and quite different ones are flourishing. The rampion, though very local in Surrey, is found in places along these downs. So too is the strange yellow bugle or ground pine, which is much more like a diminutive pine than a bugle. Also, the still stranger fur-ape, monotropa, which lurks in the thickest shade of the beech woods. That interesting shrub, the butcher's broom, or knee-holly, as it is more agreeably called, is another native. It wears its small flower daintily, like a buttonhole, on the centre of the rigid leaves of deepest green. A few miles east, there is another chalk pit, which, though inferior in the number of its flowers, has a sprinkling of the man orchis, whose shape, if there is any likeness at all, seems to suggest a toy man dangling from a string, a simile which I prefer to that of a dead man dangling from the gallows. In the woods that crown this pit, there is a profusion of the deadly nightshade, and I noticed that during the war summers, where there was a scarcity of belladonna, 
These plants were regularly harvested by some enterprising herbalist. Such are a few of the delights of the Surrey Undercliff. But alas, they are vanishing delights. For the proximity to London has rendered all this district peculiarly liable to change. How could it be otherwise when from the top of the ridge the dome of smoky pools is visible on a clear day and a view of the crystal palace, that dreadful CP, as one has heard it called, can seldom be avoided. What havoc has been wrought on the Surrey Hills by the advance of civilization may be learnt by anyone who studies the district with a 60-year-old Flora of Surrey for guide. Between Merstham and Godstone, for instance, the hillsides, which were then free open ground, have become in the saddest sense residential, and the wildflowers have suffered in proportion. One may still find there the narrow-leaved everlasting pea, hanging in festoons on thickets and copses, but other equally valued plants have disappeared or are disappearing. The marsh hellebarine was once plentiful, it seems, in a swampy situation near Merstham. But when, by dint of careful trespassing and circumnavigation of barbed wire, I reached a place which corresponded exactly with that indicated in the flora, not a single flower was to be seen. Probably some conscientious gardener had transplanted them. It is impossible to doubt that this process will be continued and that every year more wild land will be broken up in the building of villas and in the making of gardens with inevitable shrubberies, gravel walks, flower borders and lawn tennis courts. The trim parterre with its detested calciolarias, as a great nature lover has described them, will more and more be substituted for the rough banks that are the favourite haunts of marjoram and rock-rose. How can the owners of such a fairyland have the heart to sell it for such a purpose? In Omar's words, I often wonder what the vintners buy, one half so precious, as the stuff they sell. End of chapter 9